The Dorothy Kuya Archive Project is a Writing on the Wall Creative Heritage Programme commissioned by National Museums Liverpool. Dorothy Kuya was a lifelong political activist born in Liverpool on the 16th of March 1933 to a white European mother and black West African father. Upon her passing in 2013 at aged 80, she left her remarkable archive in the care of her family, now stored at National Museums Liverpool's archives. Archivist Vicky Kieran, with the help of archives assistant Daisyus Tago and our wonderful project participants, have organised and catalogued the collection. Alongside this, we've delivered an educational course about Dorothy's life to our participants and students from the University of Liverpool and Hope University. We produced the International Women's Day event in collaboration with the International Slavery Museum, celebrating Dorothy. We wrote monthly blogs detailing some of the stories found in the archive. We devised a Dorothy Kuya walking tour around the Granby Triangle and archive handling session at Granby Winter Garden during Wowfest. We commissioned Liverpool-aid-born artist Samoya Kada to produce an original piece inspired by the archive and lead our participants in designing their own Dorothy Kuya-inspired posters at her Granby Press workshop. We've done a lot, but we're not finished yet. I'm Project Manager Jenea Pickett, and this is the first episode of Writing on the Walls, Dorothy Kuya podcast. The Dorothy Kuya podcast will tell the story of this phenomenal woman in five parts. A woman that we believe is a crucial figure in 20th century Black British history. The Liverpool that she was born into was still mostly economically dependent on British imperial trade. The shipping industry, notorious for its transient workforce and tough conditions, was also responsible for Liverpool's historic multiculturalism. Liverpool's prominent role in the Atlantic slave trade meant that there had been a black presence in the port since at least the 18th century. It was the seas that planted the seeds of what was to become Europe's oldest black community. Black seafarers were usually employed below decks as cooks or in the engine room. The former because it was seen as appropriate for black sailors to be in servitude to whites and the latter because of racist notions that black men could withstand the heat of the engine room due to the colour of their skin. Dorothy's mother, Josephine, known as Josie, married Nigerian sailor Joseph Kuya in 1939. He would adopt the young Dorothy and rear her as his own, instilling in her a political sensibility that would continue for the rest of her life. Shortly after the marriage, the family expanded, with the birth of brother Joseph Jr. that same year and sister Norma in 1940.
World War II was to decimate Liverpool city centre, the area originally known as Sailor Town, where the majority of its black population lived. In an interview for the Cruel Sea Reminiscence Project in 2005, Dorothy described how her lifelong chronic asthma began with the shock of the heavy aerial bombing in 1941, known as the Liverpool May Blitz. Interviewed by preeminent Liverpool black historian Ray Costello for his 2007 book, Liverpool Black Pioneers, Dorothy remembered the severe attack she suffered in the post-war years, nighttime visits from the doctor and Joseph Kuya, her father, carrying oxygen tanks on his back from the local pharmacy to the family home. Dorothy's 1946 diary is one of the oldest pieces in the archive collection. And in this, there's barely a week that goes by without an entry of her being ill or absent from school due to illness. Also from the 1946 diary and again, the integral work of Ray Costello, shout out to Ray, we learn of Joseph Cooley's mutiny aboard the SS Princessa. This was an Argentinian-bound, refrigerated vessel on its way back to Britain, carrying the country's ration of meat for an entire week, a load worth around one million pound. The conditions of the engine room that Joseph and the rest of the black crew worked in were dangerous enough for the men to take their grievances up with their white, superior officers. They were met with racism and violence, which escalated to one of the black crew being beaten and chained to a sink in the ship's hospital bay. Following this, Joseph and the other black crew decided to strike, refusing to power the ship's engine and running the risk of their precious cargo rotting as the ship floated out at sea. It was eventually boarded by naval police. And even though dangerous conditions were confirmed by independent investigators, as well as the racist practices of the white crew, Joseph was sentenced to three months in prison for his role, a fact noted in Dorothy's diary in November 1946. One can't help but wonder if this experience galvanised 13-year-old Dorothy and her family as the following year she began attending Young Communist League meetings. The YCL was very much a training ground for baby Marxists and guided heavily by its parent organisation, the Communist Party of Great Britain. Shortly after her 14th birthday, the age required to become an official YCL member, Dorothy quickly took on the secretarial role for the Abercrombie branch and threw herself headfirst into Marxism evening classes, regional YCL meetings, demonstrations, as well as selling the Daily Worker. A timeline of Dorothy's life events, created and updated by our project archivist Vicky Kieran throughout the cataloguing process, has been the backbone of all our research. I spoke with her about the archive project, Dorothy's early years of activism, and how working with archives can be 
a more direct way of engaging with the history. It is, and you can find your own way into quite a difficult subject or a subject you don't know anything about. So it's almost like a gentle way in. I think for WOW's Creative Heritage Model, it's a great opportunity for people to get involved, for different communities to get involved, learning more about their history, sharing their history. It's it's open, it's accessible to all. There's no barriers, there's no prerequisites. You don't have to have some kind of qualification. You don't have to have read anything. I think the beauty of it is people come along and... They share their knowledge and their experiences. It's quite open in that way and encouraging. And again, it's that informal setting that encourages people to share with each other. And it's sort of, it's almost like we're all learning together. We're Mm. all sharing skills and experiences and we're all learning together. And Um, I think that's really strong and powerful. Yeah. And that's the thing about Dorothy's archive as well is that it's quite a recent archive. So as you say, there is people who come along that knew her or that were involved in some of the same campaigns as her um, and having that, like, living, you know, that experience of people who are still living that know um, the history in the archive is really interesting. You're so right. It's incredible to get that first-hand experience from her contemporaries and also to find out more about the the campaigns and the work that Dorothy was doing. To hear that from people, it, it brings the archive to life. It brings that paper to life and adds another dimension to it. I think Dorothy's archive is possibly one of the largest comprehensive collections I've worked on, which was a little bit intimidating at first. But there are so many areas of interest. There's the books the magazines, the journals, there's artwork, there's so much, everything, you know, the, the breadth of the archive, the, the work that she was doing, not just in terms of her paid employment, but also in terms of her outside interests too. So she was very interested in the arts and she attended a lot of performances, art gallery openings, exhibitions. She was incredibly well-travelled. So for me, she's inspiring, really, um, to see that she had such an active life outside of her paid employment. And to be honest, I actually feel a little bit lazy um, because she's so engaged with a whole range of things. Um, Yeah, we've joked a few times, haven't we, that we feel like we've done nothing with our lives when we look at what Dorothy's done. Absolutely. That whole sort of lifelong learning and knowledge Mm. is for everybody and reading and learning and being interested. It's not for the elite. It's for everyone. It's, It's kind of democratic. You don't have to be an academic. You don't have to be studying. You can just be reading something for your own interest so yeah, and and what would Dorothy do is yeah, little, that's another um, saying we've come up with, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we we are going to get posters and and start putting them up. But yeah, no, genuinely, she she is um, an inspiring person, and I've definitely taken a lot from her. And I think she inspires confidence. She has in me. I think she has in the community participants, and I think she did in the people around her as well. Yeah, for for her to engage with people into different campaigns, different areas from the National Assembly of Women, 
to campaigns about education. You know, she's working with people she's known and built up those relationships with over the, over time. So, yeah, I am full of admiration for her. We've both had a chance to look at um, some of the appointments in the diaries that date back to the 40s. So just from being engaged, more politically aware, socially aware as a teenager, you know, I was just thinking about, am I wearing the right T-shirts when I was 13? Um, Mm. What bands did I like? What dance routines could me and my friends do? She was confident in communicating with adults um, she was attending uh, young communist league meetings you know the average teenager did not do those sorts of things yeah. Um, yeah she was responding to change I think in society but also looking at affecting change too and I think the archive documents that right throughout her life mm-hmm. but that's something we've also tried to like wrap our head around you know, obviously a lot changes culturally, socially from the 1940s to now. And as you say, when we were young, it was just, you know, we didn't have those type of worries. But she was born and sort of grew up during World War II, during the Blitz, um, you know, and she cites that as being responsible for her ill health after the war, um, you know, coupled with the mutiny on board her dad's ship and all the sort of institutional racism happening around her. Um, I think it's in Ray Costello's book, she's quoted as saying that she was angry and that the YCL, the Young Communist League, um, you know, the sort of discussions at Stanley House and all these political activities that she was involved in was a way of expressing that, you know, feeling that you could do something. I just see a, a, a bravery, to be honest. You know, there's there's things that she recognises as being wrong. Um, she sees the injustice and inequality and instead of being apathetic about it, she wants to tackle it head on. She wants to, to affect change. She wants to meet with people who are like-minded. Just the fact that she is a secretary of different political organisations at quite an early age you know that confidence that would have given her and she's taken that forward and she's been in a lot of pioneering roles in her life so she was the first community relations officer in Liverpool for the community relations council that was a new a new post and you know she grabbed that opportunity with both hands I mean that's another thing it's Whenever she sees an opportunity, she takes it and she runs with it. And everything she's learned from being a teenager, all those skills, all that knowledge, she takes it with her, she learns more, she builds on, and she keeps moving forward. And that's so inspiring. You know, we all hit difficulties, we all hit obstacles in our lives, and it's how we deal with them. And you see how Dorothy just keeps going and keeps moving forward and if there's a no or a barrier how does she get around that and it's great to see that the archive documents Mm. how she's made these changes in Liverpool there was a distinct rise in anti-black racism that intensified following World War II. This was encouraged by what was dubbed 
the peaceful invasion of black men and women, responding to the wartime needs of the merchant navy, armed forces and munitions factories. Liverpool was seen as one of the most logical locations to place these new arrivals. Those from the colonies had been reared to imagine Britain, the mother country, as the peak of civilised society. Instead, they found exploitation, poverty and racism. The British colour bar, the banning of non-white people from workplaces, dance halls, pubs and other commercial venues, was a system of unofficial segregation that operated freely throughout the UK up until the Race Relations Act of 1965. The increased presence of what the local press dubbed the dark strangers in our midst prompted calls for repatriation, stricter immigration and British jobs for British workers. But as citizens of the British Empire or born on British soil, most black people living in the city were, according to British law, British. What that common phrase meant then, beloved even by trade unionists and not dissimilar to right-wing rhetoric heard today, was British jobs for white workers. Following the Nationality Act of 1948 and the publicity around the arrival of ships like HMS Windrush, things boiled over. For three days in August, the black community found itself under attack from white gangs who doled out beatings, smashed up black cafes, hostels and homes. Naturally, black people defended themselves and the following court case revealed that the Liverpool police, rather than concentrating their efforts on finding the gangs responsible, raided black premises with what the defence called Baton tactics. Of the 66 people arrested for the disturbances, the overwhelming majority were black. The Colonial Defence Committee, supported by, among others, Harold Moody's League of Coloured Peoples, was established immediately after the riots. The CDC donated funds for the defence of the black men and women who had been charged without bail. In the end, only one man out of the 66 people was reported as being convicted, and he was white, apprehended whilst trying to beat down the door of a hostel and shouting racist abuse. He was sentenced to three months in prison for kicking a police officer. Around this time, as well as star comrade at the YCL, Dorothy was member of the left-wing Unity Theatre Choir, a new international society. The New International Society was an anti-racist organisation established by black Manchester-born boxer-turned activist Len Johnson, who you should definitely look up. It was through her connection to these organisations made up themselves of black and white members of the Communist Party, that Dorothy met the great African-American singer, actor and activist Paul Robeson. In her 1949 diary, 
Dorothy notes attending Robeson's reception on the 7th of May and an appearance the following day at St. George's Hall, where she also performed with the choir. One of the most popular Google images of Dorothy is from this meeting as a fresh-faced 15-year-old centre frame next to the great man himself. Dorothy understood from a very young age that there were few prospects for black families in Liverpool and that the colonial capitalism that generated much of the city's wealth was had off the backs of black people, whether in Africa, the West Indies, the US or Liverpool 8. For Dorothy, the post-war labour movement and especially communism served as a necessary channel for the frustration and resentment built on a lifetime of racial discrimination, which was compounded by the physical and psychological trauma of war. CPGB membership was at its height in the UK following World War II, and as one of the first parties to denounce racism and colonialism, it attracted many black activists. The anti-colonial movement had gathered tremendous pace, and as Dorothy described to Ray Costello, local black people were directly involved. We spoke to one of Dorothy's friends, fellow comrade and former colleague, Jean Tate, to get a better sense of the political landscape and what party life may have been like for Dorothy during this period. Like Dorothy, Jean is an activist who grew up in a distinctly left-wing family. Both my parents were in the Communist Party, so I was brought up in a communist household. Um, My father was um, one of the group of Communist Party historians and published books through that. Um, He was also a journalist on the daily work of the Communist Party newspaper. Um, And my, my mother was very active in the CP. And she actually ran something called the Socialist Sunday School. I don't know if you've heard about Socialist Sunday Schools. They were set up at the end of the 19th century by the trade union movement. They've completely died out now, as far as I know. But um, by the time I I was sort of um, pre-teens, there were about eight different Socialist Sunday School groupings in different regions of the country. And we had one, well, my mother actually got one going because she had kids and knew other Communist Party members who had kids. Um, And the whole aim of it was exactly that, instead of a church Sunday school, to have um, a socialist Sunday school. And a huge amount of my political education happened happened there from a pretty young age because we had all sorts of speakers. Sometimes it was quite recreational, but at the same time, we had quite a lot of political stuff and debates and arguments and we went on things like the Aldermaston marches and all that kind of stuff together. Um, so, yeah, and I remember my mum standing on soapboxes speaking to crowds and selling the Daily Worker on the corner and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, protests, demonstrations, May Day celebrations, you know, everything um, was all part and very much, and I think in parallel with... Um, Dorothy's experience in the YCL and in the CP was that, um, or as we used to call it, the party, he never specified which one it was, um, that, you know, very much a sort of 
community aspect to it. Like, for example, in our block of um, streets, there were probably maybe up to 10 Communist Party families with kids. Um, and we all in and out of each other's houses and so on and doing things, all sorts of things together and supporting each other, you know, in all kinds of ways. Um, and I think Dorothy's experience in Liverpool 8 was probably not dissimilar from that in the, in the YCL, particularly in the YCL, also in the Communist Party too. The Colonial Defence Committee disbanded not long after the 1948 riots. But when the local advisory committee of the Colonial Office, a group who was supposed to be looking after the interests of colonial subjects, approved a scheme to strike 25% of black sailors from the shipping register, some members regrouped. And in 1950, the Colonial People's Defence Association was born. The CPDA was rare in that it had an all-black leadership. This was at a time when most organisations set up for the welfare of the resident black community were managed by middle-class white patrons, whose paternalistic and colourblind approach to race relations did not tackle their grievances. The CPDA was also open to any tribe or nationality, black or white, when the community at that time was known for its multiple African national and tribal associations that operated quite independently from one another. The CPDA was concerned with the liberation of black people across the diaspora and with the rights of black people resident in Britain. We know that in 1952, Dorothy, now 19, took on the role of Vice Chairman of the Women's Council of the CPDA. And in their report of activity from 1950 to 1952, she recorded the successes of the women's group, including the organisation of a trip to Chester Zoo for 300 local children, the first CPDA Christmas party attended by 120 children, with sweets donated by Labour MP Bessie Braddock, a holiday to Europe for the young son of a CPDA member, a number of interesting lectures and guest speakers for the women's group, and networks with other women's organisations across the UK. The self-determination of the CPDA, along with its communist ties, did not sit well with many organisations. Leaders at Stanley House, for example, the flagship community centre opened by the Colonial Office in 1946, and the most obvious place to hold meetings, refused to accommodate the CPDA. Instead, the group met at one another's homes in the early days, or at Pastor Daniel Ekate's African Church's mission. It was the Unitarian Church on Hope Street that would eventually provide a space for the CPDA, for its meetings, and for its socials. Idris Cox, a Welsh communist and secretary of the International Department of the CPGB, paid special attention to the Liverpool branch of the New International Society in an undated report from the early 1950s. In it, he specified, quote, 
The most urgent need is for training for the splendid coloured cadres who exist. We need not only party cadres, but to develop leaders. You can't help but wonder if Dorothy was one of the splendid cadres he had in mind. He does make special reference to Manchester's Len Johnson and Liverpool's Ajate Soa and Ludwig Hesse. Both were also members of the CPDA, with Hesse as chairman. Ludwig Hesse was a Ghanaian trade unionist and active communist who had lived in Liverpool since the 1930s. Into her old age, Dorothy would reference Ludwig as having a huge influence on her activism and career. Dorothy described these formative years as a process of discovery, socially, personally, and politically. By immersing herself in community activities at the African Church's Mission, Stanley House, Unity Theatre, YCL, CPDA, etc., etc., opportunities presented themselves, and she took them. In autumn 1950, Dorothy worked with the CP in Sheffield, helping to organise the upcoming World Peace Congress, before Atlee's Labour government sabotaged plans and the Congress was moved to Warsaw. At a meeting about the change of plans, Dorothy said, she turned round and there was Pablo Picasso. She introduced herself, they shook hands, exchanged a few words, no biggie. During the 1950s, as well as training and then becoming a nurse for the newly established NHS, Dorothy became active with other socialist organisations, such as the World Federation of Democratic Youth, the Women's International Democratic Federation, the National Assembly of Women, and the Movement for Colonial Freedom. In July 1957, Dorothy, now 24, and already with a decade of activism under her belt, was part of the Merseyside delegation representing Great Britain at the 6th Annual World Festival of Youth and Students in Moscow. The WFYS was a festival that celebrated the coming together of youth from across the globe in peace and friendship. The memorabilia that Dorothy kept from this no doubt life-altering trip is fascinating. There's her travelogue detailing every aspect of the journey from leaving Lime Street to travelling across Europe with her delegation by train, being greeted at every stop by hundreds of Soviet citizens who presented them with flowers, fresh fruit, chocolate and other treats, the dinners and dances in Moscow, the factory tours and fireworks. There's bright Soviet-style postcards of cartoon youngsters, all creeds and colours, together under a rainbow and smiling sun, or of the personified earth watering plants and smiling, or winking with a thumbs up in a red beret. You can find much newsreel footage of the 1957 festival on YouTube, and what is palpable is a fresh sense of hope following the war. The streets swell with smiling faces, 
and the array of multi-ethnic bright young things dancing and holding hands really gives a sense that this generation of youth and students whose collective childhood had been dominated by a war that claimed any hope of stability had had enough. From the grey rubble of Liverpool, of food rations where racism reigned, to the adventure of travel, the abundance of food, the music, the bright lights and welcoming faces must have felt to Dorothy enlightening. Having never heard of the WFYS before starting this project, I asked Jean Tate if she could explain the significance of the festival. As far as the Soviet Union was concerned and communist parties all over the world, 1956 was the big year when Khrushchev denounced Stalin. And um, there's a result of that, things thawed quite considerably in the Soviet Union. Um, And before that, although there were international conferences, they were very, very closely monitored and there wasn't, um, you know, a lot of mixing of people and all that kind of stuff. But in 1956, the summer, sorry, in 1957, the summer of 1957 was the first time when delegations of young people came from all over the world, thousands of them all in, in Moscow. And, you know, they were, they were all mixed up together. Um, obviously the delegations were in their own groupings, but they did all mix up together. They all met with each other. Um, and they were, you know, they were able to move around quite freely. Um, and I remember it, and so it was a big deal. I remember it particularly because I was in the YCL. I didn't go, but I knew YCLers who did go and um, come, them coming back and saying, you know, how exciting it was, euphoric, you know, just huge crowds of people as far as you could see. The the, the overseas young people were in um, in kind of floats and lorries and things and Soviet people just crowding around and hands shaking and hugging and people crying and singing and all that kind of stuff. It was it was amazing. And, you know, huge amounts of concerts and events and dances and all that kind of stuff, as a result of which there were quite a lot of um, children who um, ended up <laughs> being born in the USSR. <laughs> Who <laughs> was as a result, presumably all over the world as well. But uh, oh, well, that's good to know that it wasn't. You know, I think the the image that's portrayed on the news, real footage of us, this you know, nineteen fifties, really sort of sweet and innocent um, oh, festival. So I, I like that. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, people like um, Peggy Seeger and Ewan McCall and all those. They all went and they gave concerts and you know all this. It was just, yeah. I, I can remember them talking about it and saying how, you know, just amazing. And it's just because it was the first one after the denunciation of, of Stalin that it sort of became um, a big deal. One has to wonder about the come down from this thrilling experience. How did Dorothy feel returning home to life as a black young woman in 1950s Liverpool? Did the Moscow trip give her a book for more adventure? As the 1950s rolled into the 1960s, Dorothy decided to leave nursing and return to higher education. If her formative years were characterised by a discovery of self, 
Then the 1960s were all about self-improvement. During this decade, Dorothy honed her political activism, focusing her attentions on decolonization and anti-racism. But more on that next time. Next episode, I'll be chatting to Professor in African Diaspora Studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and friend of WOW, Stephen Small, about the influence of the Pan-African movement in Liverpool and how this shaped Dorothy's politics. I'll also be speaking with Communist Party historian David Horsley about the Black communists of post-war Britain and the emergence of Dorothy as one of the most prolific. To see us out, I asked Jean Tate what she felt was the legacy of Dorothy Kuya. Well, I, clearly her legacy is, is uh, as a, as a, a terrific um, inspiration to everybody who's struggling in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, whether it's, um, you know, working class people, poverty uh, whether it's uh, for women, whether it's you know anti-racism and so on, she's a big, she's a huge inspiration, um, and you know I will put her up there with people like um, Claudia Jones, for example, who people are knowing more and more about now. She's somebody that's really got to, got to go down in history, and I'm really glad that that's what you're doing in Liverpool, which is yeah, it's really really good. We ought to be th- perhaps thinking about doing something in London, in Harringay in particular, where she worked. Um, and that might be worth exploring for me to link up with what you're doing. Because there should be some marker here, I think. Thank you for listening to Writing on the Walls, Dorothy Kuya podcast. A big thank you to all the team at WOW and National Museums Liverpool for supporting the project. And a very special thanks to Paula Golo and Tammy for allowing us access to their Auntie Dorothy's momentous collection. Thanks also to archivist Vicky Kieran for her meticulous work, to Datius Tago, archives assistant, and our project participants, and to Jean Tate, who we'll hear from again in a later episode, for her wonderful insight and memories of Dorothy. This podcast was researched, written and narrated by me, Janaya Pickett. Edited by the wonderful Rory Ballantyne with support from Melodic Distraction. We hope you enjoyed the first episode and look forward to sharing the next chapter of the political life of Dorothy Kuya in episode two.